I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson, and deal-making is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and deal-makers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths, and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a deal-maker's DNA. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of A Dealmaker's DNA. Like I always say, we got a fun one. I got Ben Baldwin. Ben and Ben and I go back way back. We were just talking off camera, and uh, we were trying to decipher how long it is, but it's over a decade. And uh, unfortunately for me, I, I looked like Ben with the, on the hair side, but uh, you know, before before uh, before now. But uh, Ben, for those who can't see him, has a full head of hair, and I am I am completely bald. But Ben is the is a founder of upteaming.com. It's a first goal achievement system for teams and also a co-founder of Scale Driver, an innovation consulting firm, also founder of the Founder City Project, a community that interconnects hundreds of technology founders. I knew Ben originally from his days at ClearFit. Uh, ben had been a founder of, uh, of three technology companies focused on predictive uh, analytics and human behavior, which I'm sure we'll get into because I'm quite fascinated by that. And Ben is a, is a writer, he's a speaker. I mean, what, what hasn't he done? So Ben, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Elon. It's, uh, it's fun to see you again and uh, get to be sarcastic with one another. Absolutely, absolutely. So, <laughs> so, so, so Ben, let's go way back. I always like starting this. You know, I, I, I know about your, you know, your entrepreneurial journey as of probably you know, 12, 15 years ago, however long it's been, but take me back before that. I mean, what did childhood look like you? How did you become you? You know, I'm always fascinated by what the, of what that kind of origination story is behind the entrepreneur. Uh, you know, I think that I've started to see some, some really interesting patterns about the kind of people that land up, you know, being in the spot that, that, that you and I are in. Yeah. Well, if I go way, way, way back, it was when my dad, so my family moved to Toronto when I was about four and I'm very old. <laughs> so this was like way back when Xerox was like the sales company. My dad was a manager at Xerox. He had a third of his team go off to this little company named like a little startup named Microsoft. He had the other uh, two or three people go on to this little not yet even company named Interwest. And he decided to go to Toronto. <laughs> he says he never regrets coming here, but his sort of background is very entrepreneurial and, and I guess startup based. Where were you guys originally? Fort Toronto? Oh, Vancouver. So we were Vancouver based. And so a bunch went to Seattle and then um, in Whistler, you know, wasn't even Whistler yet. And they, they headed up there. So he went out east to Toronto, ended up like the job at at Xerox was not kind of what he thought it was. So he ended up starting a company and had kind of a whole entrepreneurial journey. But it all started with his background in in sales and as a sales manager. So he always he had drilled into him this doctrine of, you know, kicking ass, take the stairs, not the elevator, quite literally in those days. Like they get to their meetings and they get all sweaty. <laughs> like I took the stairs. People are like, I better buy a copier. Yeah, you better buy 10. So his background and it definitely permeated into you know my upbringing was from being surrounded by these people who not just had an entrepreneurial journey but did kick ass like really big things like on the global stage like interwest and and then his friends at microsoft etc so he gave me that sort of a foundation of uh leeway so when i was growing up like i would have 
like I would buy lumber and build forts and stuff and, <laughs> and like enlist all the neighborhood kids. So whatever was kind of building sort of building projects, I would, I would be involved in like art and building. So it was a very spatial sort of creative thing. And so, you know, I was always trying to create something more than directly. How do I make money? Cause I think that there are different origins of like the one is certain people are driven by independence Others are driven by sort of organizing people. I think that I was driven by like creation or, or building of things. And then um, I would apply the people around me and sort of to do those things. So my childhood was very much like the entrepreneurial side was reinforced by my parents. And, you know, I kind of grew up with that foundation and made shit <laughs> over and over again. Some was stupid. So I, I guess that means I learned to fail and how to come up with one good idea out of 10. And so does that answer your question? Yeah, this I want to go back to this idea of what motivates someone in the first place. You know, you 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 have this distinction between the the creator versus the desire for independence. Really interesting. I've never really delved into that idea before. What do you think are the best, you know, kind of precursors of motivation for entrepreneurship? Because I firmly believe that desire for income is a horrible motivator. I think there's got to be a deeper meaning for someone to be successful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The desire for income is often driven by freedom. So there is a sense of uh, freedom. Like it depends a, a lot of from, I mean, I, I work with like hundreds and hundreds of founders and there's always sort of a, I think it comes back to like two things. One is freedom. So they want to be free and they know how to get it or they're confident that they can learn how to, become free is, you know, their definition of freedom stands. And the other one is I kind of, I, I joke and I make fun of these founders or entrepreneurs is it's kind of like an affliction. They can't do, it's like the last resort. It's like they don't like hearing the word no. And so on one side is freedom. And then the other side, it's sort of like, I can't get what I want any other way. So it's the last resort. If I could go and get a job at a big company and like actually be able to survive that way and that would satisfy me then that would be cool but like I, I can't this is the only way i can serve my my path forward whatever whatever that is that's that's more like more me because i've always had the the freedom piece but i see freedom and that manifests itself as like financial freedom or in in other ways that that's very very strong especially with people who move to canada for the opportunity of like being a canadian citizen and so that's that's uh, I see that motivation a lot, and it's a big, big driver. You mentioned earlier this idea that your father came from a sales background and became an entrepreneur. You're around a lot of, of entrepreneurs, specifically technology founders, right? And what I've found is that there's two backgrounds that have done well. It's it's the salesperson and it's the engineer who are more kind of product focused. What's your view on what works best versus you need both? You know, you need kind of co-founders. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of evidence that supports that having more than one founder uh, is quite successful, specifically in technology companies. But I'd love to hear the patterns of success that that you've kind of observed as it relates to the types of founders that start these companies. Good question. For sure. I mean, product didn't really exist, so engineering is like a place you can go to learn skills to make stuff. So, so product can come from any direction. I talk to, I work with a ton of product people, and they kind have a background like in engineering, some sort of technical side. And the other part are like, I am totally unqualified for this job. 
<laughs> what is it? And they could come from anywhere. Like they could come from sales. So to answer your question, it's having a good product is obviously really important, but there's like product and distribution. So distribution would be like sales. So product and distribution are the most important. Like you kind of need both, but if you have no distribution, nobody knows your product exists. So it could be the best. So distribution, I would say, which is kind of sales really. And at first, if you're doing things that don't scale, like you're learning about your market, you're listening it's really sales driven, whether you like it or not. Like research is sales, right? So it's all the ability to listen to not just your customers, but like you got nothing. <laughs> so what's your buying process? Which is the type of thing that a good salesperson would ask is like, how do you buy? And then I'll fit that process. A founder or entrepreneur needs to do the same thing is learn how their customers want to get to their product. So distribution, I've seen come before product. Sometimes product is so good that it just naturally finds distribution. But I found, yeah, like sales is, I mean, you, you have to eventually recruit if you're going to scale and that's sales. And you got, you got to sell a vision internally as you're building a team. Yep. So I just see, and sometimes it's called communication, but like really it's being able to have, like have to make people believe in something. It's like usually a little crazy. So it's like an extreme version of, of sales. It's like believing in yourself because at first when you start a company, that's, that's all there is. Like they're looking you in the eye. They're not looking at your slides. You're like, why, why do I feel weird? <laughs> right. Cause it's you. Then you get a little bit of product market fit and they look at the slides with one eye and you with the other, which is kind of weird. And then as you get into like the series B stage, sort of like they, they, they look at the slide deck <laughs> and it's sort of, can you create a faster meat grinder or whatever it is? But the sales part is key. And I've actually seen a, even in fundraising too, like a bias toward people who are like, they, they don't create a great slide deck, but they may have an awesome technology, like really, really amazing. Like you just can't see why it's, they, they, they aren't able to explain to an investor or even to a customer sometimes like why this is the future. And it's kind of a non-starter. So, I mean, there's a bit of an arbitrage with people who have great slide decks or presentations, right? Or skills or that whole relationship development side of things. It's super powerful. And I've seen a lot of companies that got <laughs> under the hood. They make lots of money because of the, the people who can sort of build those relationships with customers and with investors. So, yeah. yeah critical. So, I mean, be becoming an entrepreneur and specifically a technology entrepreneur, I guess, in Toronto, it's become very sexy, right? I mean, before... You know, that that wasn't the case. But my, my question for you is, can anyone be an entrepreneur? Because my opinion is no. But, you know, I think that because I'm, I'm a huge believer, if you listen to my podcast, that there's a nature and nurture equation that exists. And it, there's a heavy, heavy weight to nature as much as people don't like to admit it. What's your opinion seeing probably a lot more entrepreneurs than I have? Hmm. Part opinion, part like background in science. So my background, I mean, you mentioned ClearFit. So like I created the first job matching system and method, if you want to call it that, that used personality. So what that meant is that we could assess someone and predict in the future what sort of stuff they'd be good at, whether it's a job or certain tasks. So with founders, with entrepreneurs, what we found and a whole bunch of others have found as well is that there's a baseline. So there's a baseline nurture where it's just like you can build on top of that. But if you don't have the baseline and you can put all the skills in there, it's it becomes 
hard. So my answer is kind of like both, but there is an order. So it's first, like you have to have the risk tolerance. Otherwise you'll like, you gotta be, <laughs> I'm a little bit crazy. I don't want to say everybody has to be crazy, but you gotta have a different risk profile than other people's. You have to see things as not risky, whether that's because you're crazy. I, I say diluted. I think, I think entrepreneurs have to be somewhat <laughs> diluted. Yeah. I mean, like externally defined is crazy. I'm, I'm making fun of that word, but like, it's a crazy idea sort of archetype, but you have to sort of be able to have that tolerance for risk and just being wrong. So you, you really, without, I mean, I, I think the, the way that, the way that I like to think about it is sort of internally defined versus externally defined. So you have to have the nature as a baseline. And a lot of that is like being internally defined, like, you know, who you are, because people are going to, if you're doing the right, if you're doing it right, like, you know, 99 out of hundred people are going to think you're not doing something right. I mean, that's just how this stuff works. So you gotta be okay with the external definition, not being of yourself. Like your identity isn't driven externally. You can drive it yourself internally. And, uh, but then actually as your company's scale, so the baseline is that you have this ability to believe in yourself and it's very nurture. And then, or, uh, and then there's a lot of like learning that that person can do. And this is where founders have trouble where, and this is where I've screwed up too, is like the external definitions of you that you ignored at the beginning become really important. Like, how do you come across? Like the self-reflective sort of bit of like, what do your employees think of you? And if you say, I don't care, that's not the right answer. What do your customers think of you as a leader? Like, do they believe in you? What do they think you're good at? And if everybody says things that are different from you, then you're wrong. <laughs> like that's the perception is reality. So it shifts a bit. I, I totally agree. Perception totally is reality. And people don't understand that. Especially as you scale. And it's really hard to make that transition because there is a lot of like bullshit, right? It's not just politics. It's like a complete, like, how do you invert that self, right? It's no longer you driving that, like your parents tell you, right? <laughs> and it's now something external it's people you love people you don't love i mean and the bigger your company gets the more you have to have this in some ways simplified view of yourself this archetype that you may not be have as much control of as you might like so that's something that's always been hard for me personally but i've seen really strong in a lot of these people who scale up these larger companies especially founders so so using some of that scientific background i want to come back to clearfit after this question, using some of that scientific background, like what were the major things that that entrepreneurs, founders did wrong? You know, whether it be during that scale up process, whatever it might be, like were there were there commonalities amongst those failures? The failures of the people, or yes. the failures of the product? No, the failures of the people. Okay, so the the science of the failures of the people would be. I mean, there are a bunch. There's so many different ways to fail. Elon. <laughs> One is like what we talked about. They couldn't sell their awesome thing, right? So they also couldn't handle being told like the harshest version of no. People say it's not personal. It's really personal when you're really told no. So it's being able to, it's not being able to shrug that stuff off initially. It's uh, conscientiousness is like one of the strongest drivers, predictors of success. So that's, that's really important all the way through. If you don't, if you're not conscientious. Can you define conscientiousness? Yeah. So. 
I mean, the way that I'm, I'm sort of lumping a bunch of traits in with it. I mean, so I, I'm not going to bore you with the standard psychometric term, but it's kind of like doing what you say you're going to do. So you got a consistent persona that people can invest in. So it becomes an, it becomes efficient to work with Alon because Alon does what he says he's going to do. He did it last time. He does it next time. I don't have to worry and like double check everything. Like, you know, you got Warren Buffett doing one page contracts. There's consistency to who he is and how he acts, which is really important. So that ends up becoming something is necessary, you know, manifests itself as reputation and getting shit done, like executing. And uh, the extroversion is less important. There are a lot, there's a lot of introversion, just thinking through the different traits scientifically. Uh, the other one is like assertiveness is pretty important. Being able to speak up when the rest of the world says something, you know, just go, yeah, and agree. And doing it in awkward situations, like not just when you're on stage coming up with a point, but also putting your hand up when someone else is on stage and putting yourself in the line of fire. Those sorts of things are, are pretty important. But company wise, it's like, I mean, if it's, if you combine the different traits, it's like you're nothing without being able to listen or being coachable. So I'd say that that is a bunch of different traits, like the ability to listen, which I'm constantly working on. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's so, it's, it's so obvious when I see it, like it's, it makes so much sense why so many entrepreneurs fail. It's so hard. It's like, how do you actually survive? It's like running through, you watch a, you, you watch a, a war movie and you're like, how do they get to the other side? Like, that's, that's what it's like. Like anything can happen, right? There's who you are when you start it. And then you got to totally change that. And then, you know, a pandemic hits and then you got to change who you are and then everybody leaves and you're like, what? <laughs> Everything is always crazy. So how do you manage that sort of thing and, you know, adapt? But there's no specific scientific trait around being able to evolve, but that's, that's like critical. Yeah. I mean, I mean, to your point, what makes someone good at starting a business is completely different to what makes someone good at scaling a business. Those are completely different mm -hmm. skill sets. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I've seen founders who have scaled these awesome companies go back to the start and it's hard. It takes them a while to get back into that old, internally defined persona. But uh, I think it's harder for the sort of early stage, internally defined founders to accept this externally defined version of themselves. Like they're not in control and they're there to co-create with people on their team and to let them really have the credit and to really understand like I'm terrible at, or if you say one word differently the following day, that team of yours will will interpret that as being like a new direction when you didn't necessarily mean that. And then they didn't give you that feedback. It's just like, it's, it's a very different listening skill and level of consistency and just really wanting your team to succeed more than yourself. That's the real driver. And so what I try to do is surround myself with now with people who are just incredible at wanting other people to succeed, because that's really the thing. Like, they can spot people who can grow. So it doesn't matter what school they went to, but everything is a people system at a certain point. Like after this is the thing I found that's the most important. So you can start off and you talk about like, here's the product, here's how we're going to go to market, you know, is marketing, you know, they might be good at sales. Then they talk a little bit about financial systems. Like we could buy this company, which would get more revenue, but just a little higher level of strategy. But I found the third level, which is people systems. Like if you ask a systems thinker or anybody actually, um, the question and the people who answer in people systems, like if you ask them a technical question, they'll say they'll answer it by uh, through people on their team. 
So they'll explain how they would go about it or why they put someone on a team, or I could get you that answer with so-and-so. If they answer like explaining uh, through people and how those people interrelate, that's like the highest level of once people go there, they don't come back, which is, which is really cool to see. Like you can, if, if you, you, you'll, you'll see, you'll, you may notice now when you talk to people and they answer um, questions that they all are sort of people involved and how those people interrelate. And so um, that's one that's really hard. I've seen a lot of founders struggle. You hit a hundred people in general, hundred, 120 people. If you don't immerse yourself in people systems and obsess about people systems, if I tweak this, if I give this person training, if this person meets this person at the right time or this person over here, if they're not thinking like that, then I've seen it really limit, like stop momentum, like literally like halt, like Dunbar's number is going to end your growth. And once you end momentum, then that's a, that's a real blip. It's harder to raise money. It's harder to keep your employees going. But, and I see that as being really a critical thing and in something that anybody listening to this program, hopefully they can see when they're or hear when they're talking to someone. If they answer in these people systems, then it's like, it's a good symptom, at least uh, for scalability. That's really interesting. I've never heard that before, but it makes total sense. It's like, you know, being able to move chess pieces on the board as opposed to playing checkers. So those are, those are very different things. So let's go back to, clear fit, you know, because you, you speak about people identifying people, you know, people systems. You were super early in this idea of predictive analytics for human behavior. A, why? <laughs> and B, I'm not even so sure, like it makes all the sense in the world to me, theoretically, but I still don't know if it's being utilized as much as it probably should be. What's your opinion as someone who's far more versed on the subject? First, the why, because I'm curious. It's a very good question. The why is because I have trouble myself. So in order to understand people, I need systems. So I put systems down to make sure that I'm thinking through things properly, like with everything, <laughs> like not just lists, but like my ability to think through like what exactly drives what in, uh, in relationships and everything. Like otherwise I just will forget to call people back, right? Or forget to understand how people like to learn. So. Psychometry for me was a way to, in a systematic way, understand other people. And then I was really interested in kind of trying to get in their shoes and predict where they would end up. But here, to answer your second part of your question, the more interesting part that I learned. <laughs> so let's use an example, an extreme example. So psychometry is predicting future behavior in a person, in workplace behavior in particular is where we were. So let's say something is, and there's no such thing as an accuracy score, but let's say I have an assessment that is 99% accurate of, you know, you alone. So it predicts you. And I give you a score and you don't agree with absolutely everything that's in there. You automatically think you're the 1%. So the market is like, it doesn't matter how accurate something is, if it's 99% accurate, again, which doesn't really exist and not measured that way. But if it were, then the majority of people think that they're that 1% because they don't want to be boxed in. So this is, uh, this is, and, and, and it's, it's, it's sort of a weird, there's like a meta product. So there's like the truth. And then there's like, who wants, who cares? <laughs> so with psychometry, it's, it's, uh, it's really interesting in how you, uh, the people part of it is the hardest part. So you, the actual predicting future behavior, like you can do that, but getting people to get into that process is the hardest. So what I'm doing right now 
is in a way psychometry. So it's kind of, so this is up teaming and it's, I mean, the easiest way to describe it is it's a peer support network for everyone at venture back companies. So everybody gets matched with peer groups and they sort of get in these groups of three to six people. You can be in product, in marketing, maybe chief of staff, a specific type of founder. And it's really, really cool. And they end up supporting each other. But the way that we match people together is very overt as opposed to covert. So they believe in the matching. So you will complete uh, an assessment if it's like a standard psychometry sort of tool, like a psychometric tool where you fill out a, you know, an assessment and then there's a black box that kind of says you match or don't match. Here are the questions to ask. You don't really know what's happening. If you have, and I call it still an assessment process that's over, like, you know, here's what you said, like literally like, here's what you wrote in the text box when I asked you this question. And you can figure it out yourself and it's completely low tech and completely transparent. I found that to be way more powerful for the user. <laughs> so if I ask you a series of questions. As opposed to some like hidden algorithm that they don't trust. Yeah. Like the, the customer is the customer. So is your customer. So it's, it's sort of like if they think they're the 1%, <laughs> it's like it's not in your control anymore. Right. But if I ask you a question and you're like, holy crap, that's a good question. That's really interesting. I'll answer that one. And as you're answering the question, like the order is important too, because it's like the way that we do it, it's a mini story. So, and you're the hero. So it starts off with kind of like, what do you want to do? And then why is it hard? And then who's there with you to support you? And then like, what's the, like, what's, where do you end up? Like when things go well and you start to understand what the missing pieces are. We've had some people who check into our, because we need people to check in in order to be matched because we match people. Um, in these peer groups based on the challenge they're working on and their experience level. So that's all very, very relevant matches um, from a time perspective as well. So they, they're in a group, their little tribe of people who are just like them working on the same stuff. Some people will go through the check-in and solve their things. Like it's just through ordering it. So that's, that's what I like about that. It's not for us. Like the psychometry I did in the past is like, answer this, answer this, answer this. Thanks. You know, thank you for spending 14 minutes or whatever it is or an hour. This one is like, it's your process, right? So like you're filling this thing out and you're learning as you go. And this is something I learned from like how Drucker would do, like Peter Drucker, the great management thinker. He would create assessments that would teach people something and would teach him something. So there's a really, I mean, there's an interesting relationship where there, I, you know, you call it, refer to it as meta sort of product before, but there's like a big P and a little P product. Little P product is like, here, take this test. How was it? <laughs> the other one is like, who's taking it? Big P. Why are they taking it? What's it you like? What's their impression of it? Are they going to tell their friends about it? That's the most important one to me. And that's the distribution side of things that we talked about earlier, where, you know, you can have the best product in the world, but it's like, how do people think about it? And so that's what I've become very obsessed with both from a product perspective, but our product really ends up if we're in the world of, you know, if our, our product is people. So we're very, very much in the world of shaping how people see themselves and other people see them. If we're doing these peer groups, that's really far out because a lot of the time that's a very sensitive domain. And it's a lot easier to do with founders than it is with people who are on a team. Founders have like nothing to lose. Like every day <laughs> there, there's something that's happening the people on their team when they come into these peer groups and 
and uh, it kind of is a resource they'd never used before, like being able to be open and there it's, it opens up a new dimension and it gives them this, this, you know, platform to learn stuff that they had no ability to learn from before. So it's kind of like they're different worlds. So, but they have something to lose. So founders have nothing to lose their employees. If they open up about the wrong thing, so many reasons for them to be closed off. Cause in a lot of jobs, you don't, you're, you're putting forward a front of what you're actually doing or who you are. You got to like a work self. In this case, that all gets stripped away. And that's so hard to do. But our system, the way we've kind of developed this thing over the last five years, it does that. So in a way, it kind of like is an assessment, but you're in control as opposed to the assessment or another party you don't know being in control. So that's why I like it. But it's way harder. Interesting that it's way harder. Yes. Yet less tech. Right. I mean, it's like it, it, you don't see a lot of entrepreneurs that start in technology that kind of go backwards in the complexity of tech, which I actually think is a good thing. Right. Because I think that, that sometimes technology overcomplicates things uh, where, you know, the human behavior is actually far more important. And you just need people to interact with people as opposed to interacting with code. Yeah. So, I mean, we have a saying where it's the only thing faster than software is no software. So we, we don't like I resisted any sort of software involvement, even though I'm, again, like I'm a systems type person, the only ingredients in the system in everything that we have are people and time. That's it. Everything else gets in the way. So something has to enable time or people in a better way to participate in our universe. There's no such thing as like, this is good. And just, you know, trust me, (laughs) do this. Trust me. It's all over. You have to understand as the participant in this because you want to be in control if you're going to open up and be vulnerable with your peers in this case if you want to share information then you have to understand that process as you go forward and that's really hard to explain to you because most people haven't been through that like yeah so it's it you know i i was talking to i mean now a few months ago mark mcleod who do you know mark from he was i think one of shopify's first cfos he's done a whole bunch of really cool things since like very smart now coaching and his explanation why he wants to coach is because it's something he'll never master which is pretty cool because that's kind of how i feel about this there's just absolute there's so many combinations you can never master ever master people so just getting to the core of helping to better understand for my own selfish personal reasons that understand how people work with one another and then helping other people understand how people work with one another at the same time is really like kind of, it's good for me, good for them. It's enlightening and people need it because most people, they just don't know how much they don't know about other people. And it, it's everything, right? We talk about people systems, it's like everything. So, so Ben, I, I want to ask you one, one other question before I let you go. And I appreciate your time. Scale driver, right? This, this innovation consult, consulting firm matches executives of founders, I'm sure it plays a huge, a, a huge reason why it exists is because of all the things you've just been talking about is, you know, people don't know what they don't know. And, uh, you know, learning from other people's experiences, maybe talk me through a, I want to know what innovation means to you, because I'm always curious. I think, I think that word gets thrown around a lot and I'm, I'm not so sure it's used properly half the time, if not more. And, and why you, why you co-founded Scale Driver? 
The word innovation, I'll answer that one first. So in it, I mean, there are multi-sides to innovation. So some define innovation as being something that's useful, but I don't think that that applies. So <laughs> I'd love to be very specific in a definition, but I think the definition of innovation is kind of a shit show because you don't know if something's going to be, was, if something's, you know, useful 10 years from now, was it an innovation when it was invented? Sure. But like, so how do you rate what that is? So I kind of parked that word, that word, you know, innovation for me is like kind of someone else's word. So it's like a label people are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I understand what that is. But what we do is at the core of both. So scale drivers, where it all started, we work with big company execs who are used to kind of hearing opinions and projections from the McKinsey's of the world or whoever. And I had a bench of these founders who could come in and share what is actually happening with them. They could share real experiences that are like facts. I'm like, I want that. I don't want the projections. I want to know how things are actually being built like right now by the right people. And the way that we do that, whether it's through, whether it's at scale driver, and this is kind of innovation, right? Is you don't really know. You can internalize it for your own company. The way that that's done, whether it's scale driver, whether it's up teaming, whether it's the founder city project, whether it's coaching is through it's actually sharing mistakes more than sharing what worked because I mean, sharing success stories, like having an often having an expert or having a, like a, like someone come in to share what worked is half bullshit. <laughs> you just don't know which half is bullshit. If people are in a situation where they can open up, be vulnerable, which we do, whether you're an exec, whether you're, like, it doesn't matter who you are. We, we create this, uh, an environment where it's safe to open up and talk about what actually happened. Mistakes tend to be more universal. So you can learn a lot from mistakes, but you have to create the conditions for people to actually share those. So innovation, right? If you think about like Edison's 99 ways or, you know, not to do something, that's really what it is. It's like running out of ways to not do something. And so do you want to do them yourself? Or do you want to learn the ways that other people tried that didn't work for them? And then the way that they share that information is not advice. It's sharing experiences because then you can interpret it your own way without getting into this dynamic of having to reveal, like you don't need context. So if you're listening to someone else's story about what didn't work and you get like four or five that are similar enough situations, you don't, it's actually, you don't need to divulge any confidential stuff. You can just contextualize it yourself. And it's just super efficient. So in like a 90 minute session, which is typically how long ours are, you can get like four or five things you didn't know <laughs> that you're going to do tomorrow. Kind of here's why they didn't work for other people, not don't do them, but here's what didn't work for this person, this person, this person. And you have context and kind of who those people are. So innovation is like, not that, not that, not that, not that. So let me try this. And it's like uh, an exchange. Of elimination. <laughs> yeah. 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 In everything too, like whether you're learning how to, I mean, the biggest thing is like, if you're at a high growth company, there is absolutely, I mean, say it on our site, like there's no playbook. So what do you do? The only way to move forward in your career as a founder, like everybody at your company is to either make mistakes yourself or learn from someone else's. And it's way faster to learn from someone else's mistakes and way safer than your own, except only like, you know, the Elans and Ben's of the world have uh, like the sort of the founders or CEO type level that have access to these peer networks to learn from other peers who are comfortable opening up. 
the rest of the company doesn't have that at all. So that would really accelerate a founder, even if like they don't really realize that, you know, it's all guesswork underneath them. So that's what we're trying to fix right now is we call it the engine room. So Alon sets the course. You got to make sure there's wind in the sail and it's kind of going the right way. And so that's what we do is we kind of de-risk the rest of the company. We accelerate it because, you know, here are the mistakes people made here, 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 and here and do it in a way that's not like divulging any secrets. So, and it's just really, it's really cool because it's, it's the truth. It's not made up stuff. It's not like, yeah. you know, e-booklet. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that, you know, it's, look, I have a degree, I have a background in genetics and, you know, the way that scientists have solved complex issues over extended periods of time is exactly what you're discussing here is that the, the idea of scientific method and sharing information amongst one another. And it's amazing to me that, you know, this hasn't happened more in the business world because we know the scientific method works. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Like there's just no, you got to wait around. So if you're a pro, let's say you're in product, product is one of our main sort of categories. You don't go to school for product. So how do you learn by make like literally by making the right mistakes and or hiding the really bad ones you made or blaming on someone else. Like, I don't know. It's really, really, really hard because you're the focal point of the entire company. If you're one of the early product people and you're working with sales, you're working with like design, you're working with engineering. So you have to understand people. How you can learn that, right? Like you've got to either really get lucky with a great boss. How often does that happen? Eh, not all the time. So you kind of, you're kind of stuck. And if it happens in the wrong part of your career, you're really screwed. <laughs> like, so opening the door to like other peers from other companies, the ability to learn from them, it actually increases that likelihood that you are, well, it increases your connection to your job and to your company because you realize, well, the grass isn't greener on the other side, but you also, you're learning in your current role. You're not limited by your, your boss or whatever's happening there. And so. It's pretty cool because it's like it's rewarding working with founders. So we started talking about the entrepreneurs, but the the blind spot for the founder who is kind of or the entrepreneur who is is their company. There's no work self home self. Is everybody else? Yeah, you're you're only one person. Yeah. So the everybody else they have a work self, they have a home self by definition. They can go and leave and go to another company that's growing faster. It's a very different mentality the people that grow the company versus the people who are kind of setting the direction. And so we've really like switched around our business from like 90% supporting founders directly to now like 90% supporting everybody at their company so that we end up supporting founders even better than if we were to work, you know, directly with them. So it's, it's like this, it's, it's insane. It's like this gigantic blind spot. Everybody else at the company, like, why wouldn't they want to learn how to do stuff? Right. How really do, how to really do stuff, how to deal with politics and all that sort of stuff. Like, so that's what we do. And it's cool. Like, it's really interesting data. Yeah. Well, but Ben, I could, I could continue talking to you for an hour, but I know I, uh, I told you we would be about half an hour and we'd run long already. But for those that, that would love to, you know, follow along, learn a little more about what you've been discussing, because it is so interesting. What's the best way that they can A, found, find you and, and B, find you know some of the solutions that you've been discussing? So it's easy to find me on LinkedIn, I hope. Like Ben Baldwin, there aren't that many. But uh, if you start with upteaming.com, so that's upteaming, U-P-T-E-A-M-I-N-G.com, it's, it's uh, probably the best starting point and it'll point you in the other directions. 
but that's kind of it's got it's got the whole history and everything there and it'll probably set you up the best great well ben once again you know i learned a few things that i'm going to take uh with me this this idea of looking for people that that speak about the people systems first that's a really interesting one that stuck with me i can tell you that much so again thank you so much for joining me and until next time that's it for this week if you enjoyed what you heard rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts until next time on a deal maker's dna where you can expect the unexpected <laughs>